Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is great to be with you on the morning of Christmas Eve. We'll call it Christmas Eve, won't we? This is Christmas, as in the birth of Christ, baby Jesus. A lot of people don't want to talk about baby Jesus or the origins of Christmas or anything to do with religion in general. Now, we're also in the middle of Hanukkah, which is great, and there may be a lot of other seasonal greetings that are going on here, but I guess, I guess as a Catholic, as a Catholic convert, I want to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ. Americans of faith have long recognized that this is the birth of Christ. But a lot of progressives on the left don't want to celebrate Christmas, do they? They don't want to mention Christmas because they don't want any religion in this. And I don't want to go off on the deep end here, but I do want to note, I mean, I've said this many times before, religion, and by the way, that includes the freedom of speech, the freedom of religious speech, but religion is really, religion, faith, has to be the basis of, of our culture. You, you lose religion, I mean, you lose, you lose the Ten Commandments, you lose the birth of Christ, you lose the Old Testament, you lose the New Testament, you lose a lot. You may lose everything. You lose family values, you lose the difference between right and wrong, you lose moral compass, I could go on and on. A lot of this, a lot of issues bound up in this. You know, Joe Biden, President Biden, um, he gives his uh, annual Christmas address, the Christmas tree lighting speech, you know, the National Christmas tree lighting speech. And it was completely devoid of any references to God or Jesus Christ or the meaning of Christmas itself. He did the same thing last year, too. And I find it, you know, annoying, but I find it just wrong. I mean, he's always telling us what a Catholic, good Catholic he is and so forth. But he refuses. I mean, the president, his, his, this year's tree lighting speech avoided any mention of the religious significance of this event. I mean, how can you do that? How can you do that? I will go to Midnight Mass tonight, as will, I don't know, millions and millions of Americans who are Christians, Catholics, Christians. And I'm going to refer to the Old Testament also, because after all, Hanukkah is part of this great holiday. But this, you know, Christmas is Christmas. And Biden talks about holiday season, 
And then he goes off into unity and joy and hope and light, and he just will not talk about the birth of Christ, baby Jesus. And um, there's several articles about this that you might want to look at. The one I'm looking at particularly is um, AMAC Newsline, written by uh, Seamus Brennan. Very good article by Seamus Brennan. It also came up uh, came up on Fox News, I guess, yesterday or the day before. Um, again, why why will Joe Biden not talk about Christmas? Or put it another way, why does he insist on following? You know, this leftist de-Christianizing of Christian holidays. By the way, you can contrast that. Maybe it's unfashionable, but I'm going to bring in Donald Trump, my former boss. Trump had a number of presidential Christmas messages that were full of explicit references to God. Can you imagine that? To God. And Trump's uh, remarks every year... 2017, 18, 19, 20, his remarks at the National Christmas Tree Lighting Ceremony had constant references and reverence for the birth of Jesus Christ. And I'll just quote, For Christians, this is a holy season, the celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the former president said during his 2017 ceremony. The Christmas story begins 2,000 years ago with a mother, a father, their baby son, and the most extraordinary gift of all, the gift of God's love for all of humanity. Whatever our beliefs, we know that the birth of Jesus Christ and the story of his life forever changed the course of human history. I mean, that's really terrific stuff. The Wall Street Journal always runs an editorial about this, written by the late editor Vermont Royster and talks about the freedom that came with the birth of Jesus and what a dark period it was. There was only one state and it was Rome and there was one master for all and it was Tiberius Caesar. And everywhere there was oppression for those who were not the friends of Caesar the tax gatherer taking the grain from the fields and the flax from the spindle to feed the lesions or to fill the hungry treasury from which the vine Caesar then gave largesse to the people. There was persecution of men who dared think differently, who heard strange voices or read strange manuscripts. There was the enslavement of men whose tribes came not from Rome. And then it goes on, then all of a sudden there was a light in the world and a man from Galilee saying, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And the voice from Galilee which would defy Caesar offered a new kingdom in which each man would walk upright and bow to none but his God. Inasmuch as ye have done in done it unto one of the least of my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And he sent this gospel of the kingdom of man into the uttermost ends of the earth. So the light came into the world, and the men who lived in darkness were afraid, and they tried to lower a curtain so that man would still believe salvation lay with the leaders. 
But it came to pass for a while in diverse places that the truth did set man free. The voice said, Haste ye, walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. And then my favorite apostle, really the intellectual guardian and guidelight of the story of Christ. Along the road to Damascus, the light shone brightly. But afterward, Paul of Tarsus, too, was sore afraid. He feared that other Caesars, other prophets, might one day persuade men that man was nothing save a servant unto them, that men might yield up their birthright from God for pottage and walk no more in freedom. And then it might come to pass that darkness would settle again over the lands and there would be a burning of books and men would think only of what they should eat and what they should wear and would give heed only to new Caesars and to false prophets. And then it might come to pass that men would not look upward to see even a winter star in the east and once again there would be no light at all in the darkness. And so Paul, the apostle of the Son of Man, spoke to his brethren, the Galatians, the words he would have us remember afterward in each of the years of his Lord. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. That's from an essay, In Hoc Anno Domini, which was an editorial written back in 1949 by the late Wall Street Journal editor of Vermont Royster. The journal runs that every year, the day before Christmas. And um, going back, you know, going all the way back to God-centered rhetoric, during the Christmas season. This is not just for Republicans. President Franklin Roosevelt rightly saw Christmas as an occasion to rejoice in the birth of Christ. Bill Clinton appealed to the birth of Jesus, to his luminous teachings and his timeless message of God's enduring and unconditional love for each and every person. And even early Barack Obama spoke of Christ's message, which in Obama's words lies at the heart of my Christian faith and that of millions of Americans. And Obama goes on, Christ's birth made the angels rejoice and attracted shepherds and kings from afar. He was a manifestation of God's love for us. But not Biden. Biden calls himself a about Catholic, but he would not talk about what Christmas really means, the birth of Jesus Christ. Then I'll finish a 1925 papal encyclical, 1925, Pope Pius XI wrote that most of the world's problems could be reduced to the fact that citizens and world leaders alike 
had to trust Jesus Christ and his holy law out of their lives and their politics. He continued, as long as individuals and states refused to submit to the law, to the law, to the rule of our Savior, there would be no really hopeful prospect of a lasting peace. I don't want to see religion removed from our culture, from our society, from our country, and from Christmas. How can you remove religion? How can you remove the birth of Christ? How can you remove the wonderful story of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the bright star and the angels? How can you do that? And how can you remove the monumental historical change in the world that occurred with the birth of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You shouldn't try to do it. And I don't want to preach here. I'm not a preacher. I just will say, as a person, as an ordinary person, churchgoer, a happy season, I want everyone to be happy celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah and other seasons greetings. I don't want to exclude anybody here, but this is about the birth of Christ. This is about undoubtedly the greatest change in the history of history, the Son of Man and his teachings. Let us not forget his teachings. This is the day before Christmas. And you just cannot take Jesus out of Christmas, Mr. Biden, or anybody else of your friends on the left. You cannot take religion out of daily life. You cannot take religion out of families. You cannot take religion out of the dignity of work. You cannot take religion out of what's right and what's wrong, out of our conscience out of the Ten Commandments, out of the New Testament. You can't do that. Once you do that, you destroy civilization. Am I being too blunt here? Maybe. But if you ask me, once you take religion out of our lives, then you're on the road to finally destroying civilization. And nobody wants to do that. Do they? Really? Really, Mr. Biden, you should be ashamed of yourself in this. Your predecessor presidents didn't try to take religion out of Christmas, didn't try to take baby Jesus out of Christmas. You shouldn't either. But on the bright side, on the bright and wonderful and optimistic sunlight side. We are a free country. We are a fabulous, great democracy here in America. And Christmas is one way of celebrating that. Because it was baby Jesus that gave us the freedom. Render what is to Caesar's Render to Caesar what is to Caesar's. Render to God what is to God. 
I'm paraphrasing, I'm no biblical scholar, but those are words for the ages. And we must be free here in the United States of America. We must be free to express our opinions and to keep religion as part of who we are, how we live, how we behave. This is a big day. Tomorrow is a big day. Millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians will be going to church today, tonight, tomorrow. I'll hit the midnight mass up here where I worship in Connecticut to usher in Christmas and the birth of baby Jesus. It's a fabulous time. Let us not forget that. We'll have plenty of secular things to talk about over the next few hours on this show. I am most grateful to have this show. So grateful that I'm even working on Christmas Eve. A lot of people won't. Maybe I shouldn't, but I am. And then I'm on vacation for a good while. But Christmas, I must say, Christmas and then Easter. Two fabulous days to commemorate the birth, the life, the death, and the rebirth of Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that. Of all the things we have to do, of all the pressures of our lives, of all the difficulties, and of all the wonderful, happy, good things, let's not forget him, the Son of God. It's very important. And let us always be free to worship him. I'm going to take a break, and we'll be back with much more secular thoughts for this show this weekend, this Christmas holiday. I'm Kudlow. Thank you. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, um, I've got Don't Forget Us during the week, although not this coming week, although you should watch anyway. I'm going to have a week off. There'll be some great anchors, but Fox Business, the name of the show is Kudlow. And we'll get to all that over the course of this show. I'll give my usual promos. And, you know, you can live stream us over the Internet. We are a national show. It's LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com runs throughout the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. Don't want to forget that. Um, I went long blathering on about my love for baby Jesus, but in any case, we will, at the half hour... Talk to my very dear friend, Robert O'Brien, who's a national security advisor. I mean, I think two big stories, folks, that we will cover today will be this monstrosity, absolute monstrosity of an omnibus spending bill, which moves America further along the path to bankruptcy, increases spending, causing inflation, also with large-scale tax hugs, tax hikes, the Republicans were just utterly disappointing. We will talk about that with Senator John Hoven 
a bit later in the show. The other thing is the dramatic speech um, from Ukrainian President Zelensky, which is what we're going to talk about with Robert O'Brien. And um, he said quite a few things. It was very well received. He is our ally. There are questions here, but um, on the whole, I think it was quite a good speech. A lot of money going to the Ukraine. I shouldn't say that, the Ukraine, to to Ukraine, the nation of Ukraine. And uh, we'll talk about that with O'Brien, who is a staunch supporter of American support for Ukrainian freedom, as I am as I am. I have a few nits to pick on the story, but that's about all. And then we're going to talk about Title 42 and the whole immigration catastrophe down at the southern border. What is going to happen with Title 42? So that's a health issue and a national security issue. It's a sovereignty issue. And we'll talk a little bit about Donald Trump over the course of this uh, radio show. So let me take a quick break here. On the other side, Robert O'Brien, we're talking about Ukraine and Zelensky. Stay with us, folks. Lots to do on Christmas weekend. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you on Christmas weekend. Christmas weekend, celebrating the birth of Christ. Have to say that, since our illustrious president doesn't want to say it. Somebody's got to say it, so I'll say it. Anyway, let's bring in a dear friend, Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor during the Trump administration. He's now the chairman of American Global Strategies. He's an expert on many things, actually, foreign policy, domestic policy. There's no end to what Robert O'Brien knows. So, first of all, Welcome Christmas weekend show, Robert O'Brien. Well, listen, I'll join you in a big Merry Christmas to all your listeners. Uh, <laughs> God bless you, Larry, and uh, wonder, wonderful to be with you. And I'll, throw out, I'll even throw out another uh, religious uh, uh, greeting, which will probably get us in trouble with uh, the, the, the anti-religious uh, police. Happy Hanukkah. Last night was the sixth night of Hanukkah. Yep. So for our Jewish listeners and friends, uh, happy Hanukkah to you as well. I mentioned Hanukkah. I mean, Hanukkah, after all, the Old Testament is... Essential. I mean, I want, I want to get around to talking to you about Zelensky and Iran and China and all the rest of it. But can you imagine Biden gives his, you know, national Christmas tree speech and doesn't mention he doesn't mention Christmas. He doesn't mention baby Jesus. He doesn't mention Christianity. He doesn't mention any religion. I mean, come on. You can't do well, that. For anyone that's hungry for a great speech at uh, Christmas, go back to 1941. President uh, Roosevelt invited Winston Churchill uh, shortly after Pearl Harbor uh, to come over to Washington and and plan the war and plan how the Allies would be victorious and we'd save the world. And and Winston Churchill gave a great speech to lighting the Christmas tree on the East Lawn. And uh, go go back and read it if you get a chance. You go to the International Churchill Society and get his speech, and it's a beautiful Christmas speech. So if you're if you're hungering for a Christmas speech from a great leader, uh, Winston Churchill gave a beautiful one in, in, at the White House in, in December of 1941. That's a great thought. That's a wonderful thought. We mustn't forget about that. So anyway, I thought a pretty good speech pre-Christmas was uh, from President Zelensky of uh, Ukraine. Um, 
What did you make of the speech? Was it all there? Was it convincing? Do you hear murmurs on the right, on the left, with spending too much money? We should be guarding our southern borders and not worried about Ukrainian borders. I don't happen to agree with those thoughts, but I wanted to toss them out there. Nobody better to talk about them than you. What did you make of the speech? Did he get it done? Did he did he cement and increase and enhance support uh, for his uh, uh, quest for freedom? Well, I, I think he did, and I think uh, President Zelensky is an incredibly incredibly brave leader over the past year. I mean, he's personally the number one target of Vladimir Putin. He and his family, they, the Russians want to kill him and, and all of his colleagues. Uh, and then I think it was just last night they attacked an a open-air Christmas market in mm. Kyrgyzstan and, and killed eight Ukrainians and another 50 civilians. I mean, what, what's happening in Ukraine is terrible, and yet the Ukrainian people have shown bravery and panache and boldness in fighting the Russians. And look, for, for those of our friends on the, on the far right or the far left who— who don't think we should be the arsenal of democracy and don't think we should be supporting the Ukrainians, America has two great challenges, China and Russia. Mm. And, and those two countries are in an unlimited partnership. They're in an alliance. They want to displace our leadership in the world. They want to change our way of life and, and dominate us. And Ukrainians have just taken out in the past year half the Russian tank force, which was massive. They've, they've taken out a significant number of their warships, their uh, missile batter, the Russian missile uh, stocks are, are almost nil. They're having to go hat in hand to the Iranians, the North Koreans, uh, to get ammunition. So the, the, the Russian conventional threat, the threat to NATO, uh, not the nuclear threat, but the conventional threat, is almost nil because the Ukrainians have fought so bravely. So this has been a good investment. We need to be careful in how we spend our money. We don't want any weapons we send to Ukraine to fall into Russian hands. And we want to make sure that there's no corruption with the money that the American taxpayer money that's being sent. And we also want to make sure our European allies are paying their fair share. I mean, we can't care more about Europe and Ukraine than the Europeans care about Europe. And so, uh, you know, there, there are things we need to do to make sure that that support we're giving Ukraine is, is proper. But uh, hats off at this Christmas season to the Ukrainian people who are fighting for their freedom. This has to be a battle worth fighting. You know, just on your point about Europe, uh, are the Europeans, are the Europeans doing what they should be doing? And one thing, I, I, I mean, I, I have to be critical of Europe. Uh, you'll tell us whether the Euro Europeans are pitching in to the extent they should be pitching in. But one thing, they're buying a ton of natural gas. I've made this point uh, in recent weeks. Europe, because of their um, mistakes with respect to energy and kind of falling for the renewables argument, the climate change argument. But, Robert O'Brien, Europeans um, uh, purchased roughly uh, 30 billion euros worth of Russian natural gas, not all, just natural gas, which unfortunately uh, virtually equals the amount of financial aid they've given to Ukraine. So they've given 30 billion uh, euros worth to Russia, and then the same $30 billion to the Ukraine. This didn't have to be. If they had listened to us uh, in the Trump administration, they would have been much better shape and not reliant on Russian natural gas. And if they had listened to us, uh, we wouldn't have had the uh, various pipeline issues that we've gotten. Well, Larry, you're 100% right. And, look, you were running this at the NEC when you were the uh, economics director at the White House. <laughs> this idea that the, that the Russians should have Nord Stream 2 
and, and be able to sell all their oil and gas and to the to the Europeans and, and leverage them and have political power over the Europeans uh, was, was just abhorrent at the time. It, it's the, the folly of it has been proven by the war in Ukraine. Uh, in some ways, that the belief that Putin had that he had a, um, you know unlimited leverage over Europe led to his invasion of Ukraine. And, and instead of stopping the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which which you urged and I urged and, and our colleagues did and the president did, uh, and instead of building the Mid-Catalonian pipeline, a pipeline from Lisbon, Portugal, all the way through Spain and in France into Germany, so we could have delivered American LNG, which, which burns cleaner, is less expensive, and, and, and it comes from an ally, we could have delivered that to the LNG terminal in, in Lisbon, had it shipped straight to Germany and Central Europe. And that was that was stopped for environmental reasons. So apparently, there was no environmental reason to stop the Russian gas coming in, you know, under in an undersea pipeline. But there was an environmental reason to stop the, the American gas coming in through Lisbon uh, on an over, overland pipeline that could have been repaired if it had leaked and, and very easily and, and monitored much more easily than a below the sea pipeline. So this stuff doesn't make any sense. The Europeans made a huge mistake. You know, they bet wrong, and unfortunately, it, it in part led to the invasion of Ukraine. You know, if we were producing 14 or 15 million barrels a day here in the U.S., the price of oil would have hovered where it had been hovering during the Trump years, which is more or less around $50, $55 a barrel. I don't think Putin would have ever gone into this adventure because history tends to show that it's when oil gets around 100, uh, that's when he gets very adventuresome, whether it's Georgia or Crimea or Ukraine and so forth. And, you know, this is a fatal mistake. We might well have avoided all of this. People say if Trump were president, uh, Putin wouldn't have done it. It wasn't so much that Trump would have threatened him. It's just that Putin doesn't move when he doesn't have enough money from $100 oil. Then all of a sudden he gets very adventuresome and starts, you know, going into all of these crazy ahistorical ideas that he has about the Mother Russia. I mean, to me, that's one of the tragedies of this whole issue of um, Green New Deal, central planning, stop oil and gas, turn the spigots off. Well, you're 100 percent over target, uh, Larry. And so, so there, there are two issues. Number one is, you know, America giving up its energy independence, to get, not just our energy independence, but giving up our ability to, to help our allies. That in turn led to us not being able to put full measure sanctions on the Russians. So you'll recall back in, in January, you and I were on the show. I was on your show before we before Russia invaded Ukraine. And we both called for sanctions on the Russian Federation Central Bank and to mm -hmm. kick Russia out of the SWIFT system. And that would have put full measure sanctions on the Russians and, and cut off even their oil and gas revenue, or at least a, a big chunk of it. They would have had to have sold it on a black market at a big discount, and it would have it would have starved Putin's war machine. But but you know what else is happening right now? There's a think tank in China, and this is ex incredibly dangerous. That just wrote a report that said the Russians have made money, notwithstanding all the Western sanctions, because of the high price of energy. Mm. The Russians and Putin himself personally have made money on the war in Ukraine. Now that sends directly the you know the, the wrong message to Beijing, which is thinking about invading Taiwan. They're, they're looking at Russia, which has the economy you know smaller than Italy, about the size of New Jersey, and, and thinking, well, if, they, if the West can't cut Russia off for invading Ukraine, given the size of the Chinese economy, why would they ever try and cut us off if we invade Taiwan? Mm -hmm. So, so these half measure sanctions are giving up our energy independence. 
and the failure of the Europeans to really stand up and, and cut off Russian oil and gas imports is sending just the wrong message at the wrong time to the Chinese who are eyeing Taiwan right now. So there, there are second there are secondary consequences to, to exactly what you talked about with the Russians, and it's probably encouraging Xi Jinping to think about going into Taiwan. It's a, a very bad situation. We need to get our energy independence back, and the Europeans need to step up and, and finish the mid-cap pipeline and, and start importing oil and gas from from allied countries like the U.S. and Israel and Greece and Cyprus instead of uh, even places like Qatar instead of Russia. By the way, that's a, a, a throwaway, but you mentioned Israel. Uh, I interviewed Netanyahu a couple times, once here on the radio, once on the TV. I mean, they've uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, they've discovered massive natural gas reserves, and Israel could be, a first of all, a great power, but also a great help to the rest of Europe if the Europeans let the pipelines be built. This is another example of the folly of hating oil and gas and pipelining and depending on uh, Russian uh, fuel. I mean, Israel could be a really important player here if they're, le- if they're allowed to be. Well, this is what the, the, the fallacy of the Greens, they, they hate oil and gas when it's you know, drilled and, and, uh, and extracted responsibly in democracies where there are regulations and, and, and things are done properly, whether it's Israel or the United States or, or allies. But they love oil and gas that comes from, from Venezuela, which is the dirtiest oil and gas in the world, and, and produced in an environmentally very insensitive manner. They love it when it comes from Russia. So you know, my, my wonder, you know, I wonder if there's an agenda you know, far beyond you know, the, green, the, the supposed green agenda for these folks because they have no problem with Russia exporting massive amounts of oil and gas. No problem with Venezuela exporting massive amounts of oil and gas, uh, or Iran uh, exporting oil and gas. But when it's Israel, or the United States, or, or 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 an allied country, you know they they don't they don't like it. It makes no sense. Which side are the greenies on? Are they on the American team or not? That's an issue. No, it, it's a real issue, and it, 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 and again, you don't understand why. Why they're they're against nuclear energy, which you know is getting safer every year, and 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 is the greenest energy you can have, and is is you know uh, great for conservation. They're they're against clean U.S. LNG. They're against clean Israeli LNG, but but they're they're all for Venezuelan, Russian, and, and Iranian oil. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Robert O'Brien, I got to take a break. I want to come back to Zelensky and the speech and the American support. And I want to also add on to that the Iranian factor. And then I do want to go back to Taiwan. So if you just hang with us for a few moments, we're going to take a quick break. Folks, we're talking to Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor, dear friend, and uh, all of this on wonderful Christmas weekend. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. There we go. Christmas weekend. Our crazed producers giving us a little Christmas cheer. Good for them. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're on the phone with Ambassador Robert O'Brien, former National Security Advisor, Chairman of American Global Strategies, a very dear friend on Christmas weekend, if we are allowed to talk about Christmas. 
So, Robert, did Zelensky get it done in your judgment? He will be back for more help. Uh, I, I think most Americans are inclined to give it to him, but what do you think? Well, he, he got it done, and, and I want to just mention again how generous the American people are. There's never been a people in the history of the world more generous than Americans in helping folks, whether it's in, in wars that, uh, uh, that people are fighting for their freedom and independence uh, or, or humanitarian and natural disasters. Uh, the American people and the American taxpayers have dug deep in a, in a way that no other country has in history. It's, it's unparalleled. And, and God bless the United States of America for what they do for people around the world. By the way, as we talk about that, I just want to give a shout-out to our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, guardsmen uh, who are you know, on the front lines of freedom this time of year. It's a tough time of year for, for soldiers and, and sailors mm -hmm. and, and airmen who are deployed in hot and dusty places away from their families. But, you know, even even tougher than, than, than their deployments or their families back home, uh, you know, wondering about their safety. and uh, But they're also justifiably proud of their, their sons and daughters and, and husbands or brothers and sisters who are out uh, keeping us free. So, so Merry Christmas to all our sailors and uh, Marines and airmen, soldiers and Coast Guardsmen, all of them. Uh, they're, they're doing a great job for, the, for this country. Amen. As far as Wednesday goes, yeah, th thank you. I know, I know you said no, no one feels more, more more that way than you do, Larry. I know that. And uh, uh, look, we're, we need to get the we need to be the arsenal of democracy. The, this is not a forever war where American troops have been asked to come fight for somebody else. This isn't Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, we, you know, we're not. Uh, we're, we're supplying the tools and the platforms, the missiles, the the, the artillery, the the the, uh, the rifles. Uh, Everything, the, the, the bullets and ammunition and, and artillery shells that the, the Ukrainians need to defend themselves. But they're the ones doing the fighting, and we need to keep that in mind. It's, it's those brave men and women that are out on the front lines that we see them on YouTube and on TV. And we've got to be that arsenal of democracy. But what needs to happen, though, is that the rest of Ukraine needs to be rebuilt. And as we're, as we're doing the hard power work, as we're you know, spending you know, maybe $100 million, billion on, on weapons and equipment, the Europeans need to step up and do, you know, if they, if they can't supply the weapons, and most of them can't because they haven't been spending on their own defense for years, they need to step up on the civilian side. They need to fund the Ukrainian government. They need to fund the reconstruction. Uh, they need to do the rebuilding, and, and they need to be an equal partner with the U.S. For every dollar that we spend, the Europeans ought to be spending $2 because this is a war that's taking place in Europe. The European Union economy, as you know, is bigger than ours. And so, you know, again, America can't care more about Europe and Ukraine than the Europeans care, and the Europeans have to step up and play their part. One thing I really liked about Zelensky's speech is the tie-in between Russia and Iran, calling them both terrorists. I thought that was really good. I really hadn't heard him say that before. But that's something that American ears should hear. Well, if the Iranians are bad actors everywhere, there are bad actors in Yemen and, and Iraq and, and Lebanon and Syria, uh, all across the Middle East. They're threatening every day to eliminate our, our friends in Israel. Uh, they, they want to destroy the, the, the Jewish state. Uh, they, they've said if they get a nuclear bomb, that they'll use it, to, that Israel's a one-bomb state, that they could detonate one nuke over Israel. And now they're getting involved with, with the Russians and this, this real axis of evil and supplying Putin with drones and ballistic missiles. All the things that they were able to build and buy because we had that JCPOA in place and gave the, the Iranians $150 billion in sanctions relief. And they didn't use that money to, to improve the lives of the Iranian people. They used it to, 
to build a, a defense industrial complex that could then in turn supply the Russians now in their war with Ukraine. And uh, America needs to understand that connection. And the, the funny thing is with the JCPOA, it's not funny, it's sad. With this current round of JCPOA negotiations, the nuke deal negotiations, the, the, the current administration turned to the Russians to be our intermediaries right. with the Iranians. Nah. And we're asking the Russian ambassador in Vienna to go to negotiate a deal with the Iranians for us. I mean, this is absurd. And uh, we need to understand the connection between Russia and Iran. We need to understand how, how both countries hate America. And and we need to take every step we can to protect our friends and allies from, from this malign behavior. Do the Bidens get this? I mean, it sounds like the new talks with Iran have finally fallen through, but I don't know. They keep trying. I mean, do they get there's a part of me, Robert, that, you know, I think Zelensky did this purposely, this link between Iran and Russia. And I think it was a very good thing. It was a very important strategic thought, but almost a warning to the Bidens. Don't go down this Iranian road. Well, and just like Bibi Netanyahu, another great champion for freedom, was a good friend of yours and mine. Uh, you know, th- these are people that are facing the Iranians, you know, head on. That are, that you know, Israel's been attacked by Iranian drones. The Ukrainians have been attacked by Ura- uh, Iranian drones, and, and they're warning the American people that these are these are not good guys. I, I think that Jake Sullivan and 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 probably the president understand how dangerous the JCPOA is, uh, but but there's a certain group of, of folks in the Biden administration. Or they're primarily Obama holdovers that were, uh, you know, on the vanguard of the Obama JCPOA campaign, and and for them it's like a, a, an article of religious faith that this this deal has to come back into place no matter how dangerous it is to America and our friends and in the region. But I think the the, the smart guys in the Biden administration, you know, under understand how dangerous it is. But look, there, as you point out, there's a there's a fight within the administration. There's a faction that that's very, very much believes that America's interests are aligned with Iran's, and, and you know how, how they can come to that conclusion just just is beyond me. And um, Netanyahu putting the finishing touches on his new government. There's already uh, dissent in the Biden administration. They have not treated him well. They have not treated Israel well in their first two years. Uh, here we go again. I mean, you know, I'm reading about it in the newspapers. I'm reading about it, you know, in the mainstream media, for heaven's sakes. I mean, I don't know. They, I don't know what they think they want out of Israel. I don't know what, why they don't understand Israel's strategic importance in this whole battle. Well, Israel is critical to America. I did a little piece for PragerU uh, just recently that you can find on the Internet talking about why the Israeli-American relationship is so important. But... Uh, as the only true democracy in the Middle East, as our as our friend in the Mediterranean, as a tech powerhouse, I and mean, we're we're locked in an existential fight against China for the future of the world. Is it going to be a future that which is freedom and liberty and and free speech, or is it going to be a dystopian surveillance society that the Chinese are pushing on the world with with security cameras everywhere and lockdowns and and social credit scores? And one of our great advantages in that. That fight, especially in the tech part of it, which is going to be the, the critical part of the fight, is Israel. Israel has become the second Silicon Valley. So between the U.S. and Israel and, and our, our allies in, in Japan and, and NATO, we can defeat the Chinese and, and their vision, their dystopian vision for the future. Uh, but, but Israel is a key part of that. Why friends, uh, you know, in the, in the Biden administration want to undermine Israel and, and the, the, this great democracy, this, this, this safe haven for the Jewish people, 
is, is the, yeah. again, it's, it's absurd. Happy, holy, merry, Robert O'Brien, Lo Marie, you take care. Talk to you in the new year. Thanks ever so much for helping us. Folks, we're going to take a little bit of a break and then bring in the great Senator John Hoven, an eminently smart guy. We're going to talk about this catastrophic omnibus bill and spending and taxing and what is wrong with the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with Hoven after this break. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We welcome to the show a great friend, Senator John Hoven, Republican of the great state of North Dakota. Senator Hoven, thank you for doing this, by the way. Um, Merry Christmas. How about that? I'm going to be politically incorrect. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, uh, Larry, and Merry Christmas to all your listeners. I hope they have just a wonderful and blessed Christmas. Yes, thank you for that. What was not a blessing was this omnibus spending bill that once again was jammed through the Senate and then the House. I wanted to talk to you about that. I know you were opposed to it. Um, I don't... (laughs) Rand Paul said it first, I guess, on our show, on the TV show last week, uh, when he said Republicans, he was referring to the Senate, but Senate Republicans had given up the power of the purse and they were emasculating themselves. And I guess the question is, uh, you know, firstly, is he right? I mean, 18 Republicans, I think 18 Republicans voted for it, something like that. Why this have to happen? Why couldn't, for example, the GOP take in a tougher position in the Senate? Now, it's not you. It's really the leadership, uh, which is coming under criticism now. Um, why can't we go back to some kind of regular order? Why is it that we have a $1.7 trillion spending bill, which, by the way, uh, Senator, as you may know, uh, has nearly $100 billion in tax increases as the Trump tax cuts begin to expire? You know, why, why, why? No common sense American is going to like any of this. Well, that's it, Larry. I, you know, I made the argument and continue to make the argument. And obviously uh, I didn't prevail. But my point was we need to have the new House seated. We'll have a Republican majority. And then, uh, you know, we'll duke it out with the Democrats. And I think get a better product, less spending, get rid of some of these onerous provisions. And, uh, So your first point is right. We should get to regular order. But even still, regardless, uh, you know, I felt we we needed to fight to get a short-term continuing resolution that takes us into next year when we have a majority in the House, and then we fight this thing out uh, with the Democrats. And I think that's what the people wanted us to do and what we should have done. I mean, in some sense, you know, it was a betrayal of all those millions of Americans who voted for a Republican House. And yet, uh, again, the Senate leadership refused to acknowledge the benefits of the Republican House or to follow the path that you just outlined. You know, a CR taking us, I don't know, sometime to the middle of January and let them all get settled. It just seems so easy and so obvious to me. And it, it was a betrayal of those voters and it was a betrayal of the new Republican majority in the House. Well, I think that is the, the like I said, I think that is the right plan. That is what we should have done. And I, and I think that's what people wanted us to do. I think that was the expectation. Okay, we wanted to win the Senate. 
We worked hard. We tried to win the Senate. We were terribly disappointed when we didn't get a majority in the Senate, but we did get a majority in the House, albeit a narrow majority, nevertheless a majority. So that gave us an opportunity to do just what we're talking about and try to get more leverage to reduce the spending. We've got to find ways to reform and reduce spending uh, to get uh, inflation under control. We just absolutely have to keep fighting to do that. Which was the Republican promise in the midterms. And that's another thing that hurts so much uh, because we we didn't get control of the spending. Let's let me ask you about the um, waiving the caps. There are spending caps in place, as you know, John, going all the way back to 2010. And if you if you don't abide by the spending caps, uh, meaning if you don't offset new spending with uh, new uh, uh, spending reductions, then you're in violation. The Senate keeps waiving these caps. It's a crazy system. It might have saved $130 billion. It might have saved $150 billion. And yet Rand Paul tries in his amendment and doesn't get very much support. Why, does it, why is it that no one seems to pay any attention to those caps? Well, and it's not just the caps. So the caps we should be able to use for leverage, right? Yes. But here's the reality, and, and you know this to be true. If we could just keep from spending more, if we could just hold the lid on spending, uh, our revenues are growing. You know, with the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs uh, Act, which we passed during the Trump administration, we saw with lower fare uh, tax system, which we worked very hard to put in place, we actually saw increased revenues. So the real key is if we could just not grow uh, the spending line. And if you look back and see, this is one of the things that I advocated for. Back in 2010, we had the same thing. We had a a narrow uh, Democrat majority in the House uh, with, excuse me, Republican majority in the House with Boehner. We Mm -hmm. had Harry Reid and a a Democrat majority in the Senate. And then we had a Democrat President Obama, excuse me, back in about 2011. And uh, that's when we got the Budget Control Act. And if you remember, for 10 years, we held the line on discretionary spending. And that's the kind of spending reform we've got to get in place. So that was one of my arguments. And this this time, hey, you've got the same configuration as when we got that uh, Budget Control Act and got some spending reform and and actually held the line on spending growth. And then revenues, of course, over time uh, will grow, and we cut down on that debt and deficit. Tell us more about um, about the Budget Control Act. Well, it was sequestration, if you'll remember, and there were two right. aspects to it. One was that it put a limit on how much spending could grow. So from, for the next 10 years, from 2011, pretty much until we got to almost up to COVID, we actually held the line on discretionary spending growth. Now, we still had a problem on the mandatory side, but that was the other thing in that agreement we got back in 2011. is it, We created what was, so, was called the super committee, if you remember that. And they were supposed to come up with reforms to entitlements. Now, they flamed out. They didn't get that done. And obviously, with Obamacare, you saw incredible growth in Medicaid, which is what's really driving our mandatory spending line. That's a huge issue. That's a big growth in in spending. Uh, But the point is, we actually, with the kind of configuration we got now, we got some spending reforms to control the growth of, of, of expenditures. And that's what we've got to do. 
Wow, I'd forgotten about that. I had forgotten about yeah. that. That's exactly right. Very important. What happened at the end in the Senate? Uh, Mike Lee's amendment uh, to extend Title 42 um, looked yeah. like it actually might pass. And then Schumer pulls uh, Mansion and Cinema aside, and uh, suddenly they change their votes at the last minute. What exactly happened there? Just exactly what you said. Yeah, yeah for for about you know a ten minute stretch, uh, <laughs> or as Mike or as Mike Lee said, for seven seven glorious minutes. Uh, you know, we had them. Uh, we actually had a we had a majority, and we actually had a measure in place. We passed an amendment, added to the and this this is really significant. And you'll have to have Mike on your show. He'll tell you about it in even more detail. But it's really significant for a couple reasons. First, Larry, not only because it would have required that we keep Title 42 in place, which is huge, uh, but the other thing is it would have it would have stopped the omnibus because there's no way, had we been able to hold that amendment, there's no way the Democrats would have agreed to it in the Senate, let alone in the House. Mm-hmm. And if we could have held on that, I think we could have stopped the whole thing, which is why, of course, Schumer had to go, and he did just exactly what you said. It took him some time, but he flipped both both cinema. And Manchin. that's how he got to do it, is he got them both to flip, and then we lost that amendment. But as you can see, that was a very, very significant thing, uh, and well-crafted by Mike, um, because it not only would have kept 42, Title 42 in place, which we desperately need to do, and we also need to implement the uh, Remain in Mexico and uh, uh, Third Safe Country policies. That would stop the, the border flow right now, and we need to do all three. Uh, but it would have actually uh, blown up the uh, bill, and we'd had to do what we should have done, which what, which you and I just talked about is put in place a short-term Sierra and fight this thing out with a with a Re- Republican majority in the House. So, how many post offices in West Virginia can be named after Joe Manchin? I thought Robert Byrd had most of them. I mean, what what is what exactly did they get? Does anybody know what did Cinema get? Right, the newest independent in the Senate folded on her first test, and what did they get for this? You know, I'm not sure they would have <laughs> flipped, uh, Larry, if it had. If if it would, I mean, like I'm saying, it wasn't just getting Title 42, which we desperately need to do, and I hope the Supreme Court will help us out. And you know, uh, you know, obviously not only that, more like I'm talking about, but. Um, what happened is they knew that would that would stop that omnibus, and that's that's why I think they actually flipped. Oh, you so it wasn't so much what they got; it was the logic that if this thing passed through, the omnibus will die in the House because the House would never ex- vote to extend the Democratic House would never vote to extend uh, Title Forty Two. That's I see. There was yep. so there might not have been any added pork. I mean, we don't know that, but we'll find out. But it was that logic you're saying that killed it. I think so. Yeah, I think so. So you're aware um, there's a big tax hike in this bill because the uh, R&D tax credit uh, will no longer be expensed 100% immediately. Plus, Senator, as you may know, the um, uh, immediate expensing for plant and equipment uh, goes down from 100% to 80%. Those things kind of slipped through, and nobody really talked about the tax hikes. There's also another provision in there that um, would have given corporations a break on their uh, interest expensing. That all dies 
And um, really, Republicans find themselves, I mean, some Republicans find themselves backing a full-scale tax hike as part of this omnibus bill. That's another reason why this is not, you talked about at the beginning, getting back to regular order, why it's so important we do that. Somehow I'm hopeful that with the House we can force that. Obviously, Democrats prefer an omnibus. We've got to get back to that regular order and find ways to enforce doing that so we don't have not, not just the issues you mentioned, but but many others when you get a, a big uh, bill like that. The other thing is, is why it's so critically important that we find out how to get House Republicans and Senate Republicans working together mm. so we not only are doing a better job, but people perceive it and we get a majority in this next election, both in the Senate and, of course, win the White House, so we can make sure that we don't see these tax increases over the longer term. When was the last time the Senate actually went through regular order with a budget resolution, with 12 appropriation uh, bills, you know, with hearings for each of these appropriation bills the way we used to do it but haven't in a long time? I mean, I can't remember the last time the Senate actually went through this exercise. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the closest we got was back in 2011, in that 2011-2012 range, when I told you we set up that uh, mm-hmm. Budget Control Act and got spending report. I'd have to go back. And even then, I'm not sure we got through it fully. Since then, we have gone through and gotten all the appropriation bills moved through committee, but they always get blocked on the floor, primarily because Senate Democrats want to hold up uh, labor age, which is all, uh, you know, most of the social spending. And they hold that up against the military funding, which is, of course, what Republicans want. And 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 they use that to, to stop the regular order process. Well, what's your outlook on this now? Uh, everybody's gone home with Christmas weekend, New Year's and so forth. <laughs> what happens next? I mean, is it will we go work on a fiscal 2024 budget? Is that where the House and presumably they will have some regular order and go through the appropriation bills, or people will talk about new spending caps, or what's your outlook on this? Because, you know, the GOP is going to lose more ground if we don't deliver uh, on spending restraint. Spending, we've learned, is inflationary. Uh, We've got to deliver, it seems to me, on opening up the oil and gas spigots. We've got to deliver on lower taxes and so forth. I mean, what happens now? Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think the first order of business on the the whole funding side of the equation is the House has to get going on the uh, regular order process, individual appropriations bills, and then we have to figure out how we can do everything we can to put pressure on Senate Democrats uh, to work with not only Senate Republicans, but House passed bills to go through regular order. And that's going to be a challenge. We're already talking. uh, McCarthy came over. We've already talked to him. How do we do this? How do we force regular order? That's, I mean, that's a big task, but that's a, yeah, one of the first orders of business. But then you bring up some other points. goes back to what you said earlier in regard to Rand Paul, power of the purse. How do we use the power of the purse to enforce some kind of border security? How Mm. do we use Mm. it to knock back this uh, this uh, new Green Deal agenda that is impeding our ability to be back to not only energy independent, but energy dominant. How do we do those things? And it is going to mean working with the House. We've got to figure out how to do more there. Because as you say, we've got to show 
uh, Republicans across this country, they need to turn out and get majorities, not just in the House again, but in the Senate and the White House to get these things done like you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I've talked about this. um, uh, Kim Strassel, the Wall Street Journal, has been writing about this. Uh, Because of events like this omnibus bill, it really undermines, I mean, why why should donors donate? Why should voters vote? when the promises of spending restraint uh, and so forth are never kept. I mean, that to me is where some long-run damage has taken place as a result of this uh, omnibus bill. That's, you know, that's a killer, John. What what, What do Republicans believe? Why are they different than Democrats? Well, and that's exactly right. And and that's one of the points that I, I tried to get across when we were talking earlier here in this interview, but also to our caucus, and that is, hey, look, we not only have to fight the fight, people have to believe that we're out there fighting the fight, and that is absolutely not what's going on with this omnibus. We have got to find a way to sync up with the House and go after it. We'll see, you know, I mean, obviously the Democrats still have a majority in the Senate and, and the White House, but we've got to fight, and this was a chance where uh, that we needed to do it, and, and hopefully not only get a better result, but but show people that we're fighting for the things that, that we believe are important. When McCarthy went over to the policy lunch on Wednesday, I mean, what happened? How was he treated? What was the atmosphere like? <laughs> well, it was fine. Um, he made it, excuse me, uh, he made it clear that he, uh, you know, wanted a, a short-term CR so that he could get into the uh, spending battle uh, with us against Democrats. Uh, But, you know, so he did make that clear. Uh, But beyond that, um, you know, it it was good. And, and, uh, you know, we talked about a variety of things, including how we get to regular order. And I would tell you that, you know, there there is a very strong feeling, uh, I believe, uh, among Senate Republicans that that, uh, we want to see Speaker McCarthy get that position, get the Speaker position, get in there and get going and work with him. So you think, is there going to be a change in attitude in the Senate leadership? I mean, so many people are so disappointed in uh, Senator McConnell. And I'm not here to bash Senator McConnell into the ground, because down through the years, uh, he's been a conservative. Uh, He's done well. We all talk about how he piloted the judges through. Um, But on the whole, he's been more or less of a supply-side guy. But... Uh, some people are saying the GOP in the Senate uh, can't do what they need to do as long as Mitch McConnell is the leader. You have a thought on that? I know I'm treading here. I, I'm not. I, I don't want to bash the guy, but maybe he's just you know his time has come and gone. His arguments were twofold. One, one was that we that there was more money in this uh, in this bill that for the military, and that was that's very important. Uh, and that was one of his points. And the other was that he felt that for uh, McCarthy coming in to have to try to put together last year's funding bill instead of working forward on next year's funding bill would just make it harder for him and that, you know, he would be in a situation where he would end up with a worse result because he couldn't, uh, you know, he'd have to get some Democrats in order to pass a funding bill. Uh, and so those were the two arguments that I think uh, – Senator McConnell was convinced were were the reasons that he pushed to go forward. As I as I've said to you, my argument was no. I, I think I think this is one where we need to step up 
mm-hmm. and work with the House and fight it out and see if we can't get a better result. So yeah. uh, clearly, clearly difference of opinion in, the, in you know, how, how this one should have been handled. All right. Senator John Hoban, thank you for everything. Thanks for all you do. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll talk when the new year comes around. Thanks again. Appreciate it. folks. Yeah, we're g- thanks, Larry. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Folks, I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to come back and sort of cap this off. Please stick around. The Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Cudlow. I just want to put a cap on the <clears throat> John Hoban interview. Hoban's a very, very smart guy, a very strong free market conservative Uh I mean, I really think that Senate GOP senators have got to go through some self-examination here because there's no reason why they could not have fought this thing through with a CR and given the play over to McCarthy in the new Republican House. And I think this is going to be a big issue in the new year. As people, uh, you know, reorganize and take a look at what's happened and go through the budget process again, the Republican Party has got to stand for lower taxes and lower spending and fewer regulations and more oil and gas. And they have got to be much more confrontational and learn to say no and fight the Democrats. Anyway, we're going to talk about Title 42 on the other side of the break. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Whoa. Sleigh bells ring. Are you listening? Whoa, listen to this. A little rock music on Christmas. The Ronettes. I couldn't remember that. What a fabulous song. Just see those sleigh bells jingling, ring, tingle, tingling, too. Oh, my gosh. How good is that? How good is that? Great. Fabulous. It even mentions, I think it mentions Christmas in there. Imagine that. Politically incorrect, mentioning Christmas. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we'll try to find a couple others. The Ronettes, my God, the Ronettes, how old, how wonderful is that? Anyway, I want to go and talk about Christmas here, 2022, about to become 2023. We're going to bring in a good friend of mine, Robert, uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, who was the former CDC director. He's a uh, virologist and medical researcher on his own. He was responsible for the executive order originally, for putting um, Title 42 in the first place. Title 42 of the Public Health Service Act, which authorized the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to suspend entry of individuals into the United States to protect public health. And it was invoked by Dr. Redfield in early 2020 because of the emerging COVID pandemic. First of all, Bob Redfield, Merry Christmas. Thanks for doing this. We appreciate it. Glad to be here, Larry. So I am um, the thing you put in with Mark Siegel, the op-ed piece in the New York Post was an eye opener because of the very simple, direct, but terribly important point that Title 42 must be upheld for public health reasons, not politics, not even immigration policy, 
but public health reasons. And you say that, you say um, not just the emergent COVID pandemic and influenza transmission at the border, you didn't know it was going to block 2 million crossings, et cetera, et cetera. But you say there are health risks to the immigrants and to the guards. It was impossible for the detention centers to comply with CDC recommended social distancing and mitigation. And then you also say, um, even now, you've got high rates of flu, COVID, injuries while crossing, dehydration, diarrheal uh, diseases from a lack of potable water, not to mention, again, the terrible health and emotional risk. This is a public health reason. And if we don't have uh, anything to replace it with, then we'll be throwing public health out the window. That's where I'm reading from you. Yeah, Larry, I think uh, I think it's an important uh, point to emphasize. When I originally uh, uh, signed the Title 42, although I obviously got substantial criticism from individuals that tried to make it that it was an immigration decision, it never was. It was a public health decision. And uh, first and foremost, uh, from a humanitarian perspective, to protect the public health of the immigrants, they were being uh, detained in facilities that uh, were meant for a limited number of people, and they were being packed in there. And we were seeing significant transmission, both of COVID and flu. Uh, and again, the, you know, that was spilled over into the guards. And uh, so we felt it was really important uh, to uh, uh, not facilitate that. And if we didn't have the ability to uh, process these individuals in a safe and responsible way, then we should uh, return them uh, uh, and not put them at risk to develop uh, uh, particularly COVID and flu, which are the dominant illnesses that were potentially life-threatening that were occurring at the border at the time. So really, um, when you look at this story now, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It's um, at least temporarily in the hands of the Supreme Court. Uh, legislation is possible, although nothing got through in this um, omnibus bill. But you're, one of your key points here, yeah, the, the immigrants coming through, the illegal immigrants coming through are risk, uh, a public health risk to uh, people in the United States. But you're also saying uh, they are an enormous public health risk to the immigrants themselves, that this Correct. is a humanitarian issue. This is a health issue. We're not helping them by letting them in. And now even more, you can see uh, uh, that what's occurred is obviously they've moved away from any kind of detainment with sort of the catch and release. But what's happening is these immigrants now that are then being, you know, transported uh, in, 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 in crowded conjugate settings, only to go into a number of our major cities, only then to be integrated into the homeless population on the streets. Mm. So this this is not a way to try to maximize prevention and containment of really, as you see right now, two major circulating pathogens that we have, COVID and flu, which are causing significant uh, you know, illness in the American public. Uh, but again, realizing probably the most vulnerable population that we have in the nation, and sadly we have a large one, is the homeless population. Mm-hmm. And now we're just we're just adding to that. 
and so I don't think this is a humane, a humane approach. I mean, I did get a lot of criticism. Uh, CDC internal people did not support my decision, although this is a decision of the CDC director. And I did make that decision. I would like the current CDC director to continue it. I do believe it's really driven by public health and not to let the critics convince you that no, 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 this is public health. You're doing this as, you know, to get around immigration policy or you're doing it for this reason. No, I did it for public health. If I was in the position today, I'd do it again for public health at mm. this point because I do think it's still a major, major public health issue. We're talking to uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, former CDC director. Um, in in public health circles, Bob Redfield, what is there discussion about what would replace it uh, if Title 42 expires? Again, to your point, that this is not a political issue, this is a public health issue. Is public health issue for people who are already here, and is public health issue for the uh, people crossing illegally, what's going to replace it, or what should replace it, in your judgment? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's... I mean, it's almost if there's a narrative among the established public health community that you can't be for Title 42 because somehow it's viewed as anti-immigration mm. or anti... And, and, and so, you know, I had, you know, really plans. I liked the uh, President Trump's uh, Remain in Mexico plan. We felt we could then vaccinate people against flu and COVID while they're waiting to cross the border. We could improve their immunity. You know, we could process people in an organized, uh, legal fashion to try to minimize uh, inappropriate crowding. I really don't think they're they're thinking this through at all. I mean, just the mere fact that you see literally, literally thousands of people being put into these cities with no, you know, long-term shelter, no path to employment. Mm-hmm. What you're just doing is adding to uh, a whole uh, new population of homelessness. And homelessness is really another major public health problem in our country right now. Mm. And we're just adding to it without thinking this through. You write in this article, too, uh, the spread of fentanyl and other illegal opioids across our southern border isn't covered under Title 42. But were it to expire, we would expect drug trafficking to increase along with the massive influx of more illegal immigrants. So adding to all these other issues uh, of COVID and influenza uh, and so forth, dehydration, you're talking about diarrheal diseases, we got ourselves a major league drug problem, which has been highlighted, but I don't know that it's been incorporated properly into the discussion of Title 42. Yeah, and I think in general, you know, um, when I started at CDC in, in, in 2018, my first epidemic that I was asked to lead the agency was, of course, drug use disorder. I had 80,000 deaths that year. Mm. You know, CDC just announced we had 107,000 individuals die uh, in the year that we just completed. Uh, It's an enormous loss of human life. And uh, when you ask me about what are they going to do after Title 42 to protect the public health, and I said I really don't think they thought this through, it's also just very clear we haven't thought through a very a meaningfully meaningful effective uh, uh, approach towards trying to limit 
uh, fentanyl in our in our in our, in our nation. I almost lost one of my children from cocaine contaminated with fentanyl. Mm. Personal to me, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's an embarrassment uh, mm. to me the the way we just sort of record the numbers. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things we could do to limit uh, fentanyl in the United States. They're significant. They'll be inconvenient. But, you know, I remind people that we lost about 53,000, 57,000 lives in Vietnam from 1950s to 1970s. Mm. And we're losing 100,000 people last mm. year, young mm. people under the age of 45. Uh, so it's another huge problem. It's just totally exacerbated by our lack of an effective uh, program for the border. My role as CDC director, though, was to look at it, is there, you know, is there something from a public health perspective? And, you know, I stand by it. I still get criticized, obviously, by my colleagues on this decision. But I stood by it then. I stand by it now that it was a decision to protect the public health. And I remind people, like you pointed out, first and foremost, the public health of the illegal immigrants. Yes. Yes. That is a key point. That is what... I won't say that's the only thing, but that's one of the things that drew my attention uh, to your New York Post article uh, with uh, Siegel. I mean, that, that, that's we're not doing them any favors, Bob Redfield. That's the thing. And I don't, you know, just quickly, I mean, we're always running out of time. But the fact is, you don't hear much discussion about drugs anymore. It's too bad. I mean, you hear a lot of criticisms about it, and figures are cited, such as you have on this show, uh, the devastation of it, the the growth of it. Uh, I know there's a demand side issue here. Look, you're talking to somebody who's 27 years clean and sober, uh, and, you know, with God's help, that has worked out well for me. Um, You had a family problem, too. Millions and millions and millions of people have had family problems. But on the supply side of the drug thing or the demand side, we just don't hear hardly anything, Bob Redfield, about dealing with the emerging drug problem. Yeah, and I think we don't have a serious, uh, you know, effort to try to limit it. I mean, if we really wanted to, you can't control fentanyl coming in the country if you're going to search one out of every hundred cars Mm. or one out of every 20 trucks. Mm. You know, my, my own view is, you know, we need to take a much more serious approach to this stripping away the lives of so many people. Mm-hmm. Not only did I mention the 100,000-plus lives that were lost last year, each of those lives that were lost affected many other lives, right? And I just personally think we need to go all in in terms of if it means taking, you know, a, you know, you may not like this answer, but if it means it's going to take us 90 days for cargo to c- go across the border, we're going to search everything. We're not yeah. going to let stuff come in. And, and those companies that are caught with uh, drugs, we're going to ban them from importing for a year. We're going to be, be big penalties. We have to be serious about it. You know, when I was CDC director, you know, probably the most important um, method by which uh, illegal drugs came into our country when I first started looking at it was UPS. Huh. Put in the mail. Wow. So we don't have a serious approach. Uh, This could be escalated. And I think the American public, uh, I I, I really do believe many of the American public, if you step back, I know it it hit my family and I got to share it with other families. I'd go to gatherings where no one would talk about uh, drug use or anything or drug use disorder. And by the end of the night, 
seventy percent of the families would be talking about it. Wow! Because they had a they had a family member or they lost somebody, yeah. you know, drug overdose. It's such a huge problem. And when you think about it, where our nation used, you know, really used to lose uh, the potential of its youth, those of us that served in the military and went into combat, it was through war. Mm. Right? And I mentioned Vietnam, 53, yeah. 57,000 people. Yeah. We're losing 100,000 young people a year now. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, my friend, I served on the task for health task force with him, the COVID task force. Thank you for this. More to be revealed, and we will talk soon. Merry Christmas. Happy yeah. New Year to you and your family. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk to John Tamney about a new book. Um, I believe John is going to tell us that cryptocurrencies really can work if we let them. Anyway, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a short break. The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk to my good friend John Tamney, who's vice president of FreedomWorks, and he's the editor of uh, Real Clear Markets. He has been for a long time. Uh, John's got a new book out. It's called The Money Confusion, How Illiteracy About Currencies and Inflation Set the Stage for the Crypto Revolution. John, I have not read the book. All I know is what you wrote to me, that you're going to defend the crypto revolution, which is fine. And by the way, you're not the only one. I mean, <laughs> this jerk, uh, whatever his name is, SBF, should not ruin what should be a pretty uh, important medium of exchange uh, and perhaps a store of value. Anyway, uh, in your usual concise manner, what are you telling us in this new book? Well, I'm telling at beginning and end that immense failure, carnage, collapse, that's the norm for any industry that's going to have a big impact. Uh, you look back to cars over 100 years ago, thousands of car makers went up, went up in smoke, uh, tons of fraudsters in their midst. You look at the Internet. That's when I first came to know, or know you better. Uh, the Internet was a r remarkable change in commerce, but as we know, lots of – the vast majority of those businesses went up in smoke. The fact that this is happening now in crypto is the surest sign that market actors are going to happen on money that's trusted and that's going to make government money better, but also just make it better in general for people to transact because they can believe in the currency they're using. You know, um, Tomas Philipson, I don't know if you know Tomas Philipson, former chair of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors, and he's a free market guy. And he was saying to me on the TV show that um, cryptocurrencies, you know, not not this uh, crook and so forth, uh, uh, Bankman Freed, but cryptocurrencies are a legitimate medium of exchange and that one bad apple should not destroy that whole thought or the advances in technology with respect to uh, blockchain. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I refer to crypto as private money. Yeah. Uh, why, why would private money be better than government money? Government's got a history going back thousands and thousands of years of always devaluing the money that it issues. Uh, private actors would have an incentive to keep the, uh, the money honest and stable. And the point I make in the book is a capitalist system that, that can build buildings that go a mile into the sky and put supercomputers in our pockets can certainly create trusted measures more important, the capitalist system demands trusted measures because everything we do is about exchanging products for products, dividing up work. If you throw trusted money into the mix, 
our potential for growth will make the present look positively destitute, deprived by comparison. So competition matters. Currency competition matters. So the best way to trusted money is let's have a competitive system. Yes, yes. as with anything else. And, and, and let's be clear. What, what did Jeff Bezos say long ago? Your margin's my opportunity. Well, as our good friend George Gilder frequently points out, there's, what, $7 trillion in daily currency trading? Mm-hmm. That is a huge margin that capitalism is going to wipe out. Before money floated, there weren't currency markets. And so some there will be capitalists that come along that create money that gradually replaces that which floats around. And so in the process, you wipe away a margin that is way too big, and you also give the most productive, innovative people on earth a currency that enables a division of labor on a level that we've never seen before. I mean, I, it just staggers me that people could be pessimistic at a time when we're seeing an industry sprout that's going to get money right. By the way, doesn't Elon Musk agree with you? Uh, he not only agrees, but I, I predict in the book he hadn't purchased when I was writing the book Twitter yet, but he was in the process of it. I, I said – that he's not buying Twitter to give me free speech rights. Let's be serious. Twitter is his crypto uh, vehicle, and we've already seen that. He's already registered Twitter to go in that direction. Let's never forget that he got into this business, PayPal, because he said banks were hopelessly outdated. Right. If people don't think he's not going in a, in a crypto route, as I point out in the book, he describes money as an information system. That's how you and I describe it. That's how George Gilder describes mm-hmm. it. He's going to innovate here next. Mark my words. No, no, and I, I raise his name because I think he is the smartest guy in the room. I'm a big Elon Musk fan, and I suspect you're right about where he's going uh, on this. So how are we doing on Honest Money right now? What's your take? Well, you know, uh, aren't we lucky? Uh, the dollar everywhere in the world is the currency of exchange. If you go to Pyongyang, Tehran, Caracas, uh, Havana, if you want to buy things, you better have dollars. So as Americans, we're lucky. But the rest of the world needs something better. And as we know from currents, all the currency trading, even the dollar isn't wholly trusted. And so we're lucky, but we can do much better. And a capitalist system, again, that that creates all this wonderment can clearly produce a, a measure that we want. And that's what the book's about. It's just saying that this is inevitable. And it's not because the government's going to do it. It's inevitable because the capitalist system requires it. That's something that Keynes understood. That's something that Mises, all the great thinkers from the various uh, economic religions understood. What do you think about the Federal Reserve's idea that they're going to create a digital currency, a digital dollar? Oh, please. Uh, wait, so, so, so the, the very government that doesn't understand money is going to create a currency that, that the markets want? Governments have been devaluing money for as long as they've been involved in money. So the idea that they're going to create the currency that's going to beat other market actors just insults reason. And so I don't even know why people worry about it because it's not going to matter. What we're go- it's, this is going to be like Uber is my guess. You know how all of a sudden Uber just destroyed taxi cartels around the world, and, and by the time it did, politicians were too late to it. People had fallen in love. My sense is we're going to see something similar here, is that gradually it's going to be a slow process. The young are going to teach us how to use private money, and by the time government figures it out, it's going to be too late. The name of the book is The Money Confusion, 
how illiteracy about currencies and inflation set the stage for the crypto revolution. The author is my pal John Tamney at FreedomWorks and Real Clear Markets. John, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Thanks ever so hey, much for this. Thank you so much. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and on the other side, we're going to do some stock market work. That's right, stock market work. Will Christmas come early or not? I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. Now, here's Larry Cudlow. I assume that's the Bing Crosby version. I, oh, you see that? I was wrong. It's uh, the Drifters. But the great thing about this, it's using the C word, Christmas. Very politically incorrect. Not allowed to talk about Christmas on Christmas. But we talk about Christmas. We're very politically incorrect. And speaking of politically incorrect, let's look at the stock market. Which, I'm looking here, I know we have a week to go, but year-to-date, the S&P 500, yeah, minus 19%, so that's pretty bearish, pretty bear markety. The um, Dow Jones total market is down 21%. The Russell 2000 is down 22%. So, yeah, we're still in a bear market, aren't we? The NASDAQ is down 33%. The Dow Jones is only down 8.5%. Dow is up 283 points this week. The NAS was down 208. The S&P 500 was down 8. I took yesterday off, and I'm taking next week off. So we'll see how this all shakes out. Let's get some very expert opinion. We have Jim LeCamp, Senior VP at Morgan Stanley, and we have Mike Ozanian, Assistant Managing Editor of Forbes Media, and co-host of the wonderful program, Forbes' Sports Money. That one plays on the Yes Network. So, gentlemen, welcome. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Other various seasonal greetings. I'm emphasizing Christmas myself because Joe Biden wouldn't mention the word Christmas when he gave his national Christmas tree speech, which I think is pretty pathetic. But we're here to talk stocks, aren't we? So, Mike Ozanian, I was looking, um, you know, you and I, old-timers that we are, the Conference Board's Index of Leading Indicators falls for the ninth straight month. That can't be a good thing. Now, the stock market's holding up somewhat, but um, between that and the inverted yield curve, and the collapse of M2 money supply. I don't know, Mike. What do you think about the story here? Give us some wisdom, please. Merry Christmas to you and Jim, Larry. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Yeah, I, I'm old school. I, I think the leading indicators are, have a pretty good track record. Uh, I just tried to take a pretty deep dive into something that I care a lot about and maybe think is most important when it comes to stocks, corporate profits. Mm. Uh 
I, I was looking at even with the revision that came out Friday in GDP, they're talking the Fed St. Louis's Fed is talking about zero percent growth uh, year over year for quarter three. Mm-hmm. Not good. Uh, and then you look at the bigger companies. Backset is talking about a 2.8% decline in the third quarter, uh, which would be the worst uh, year-over-year report since 2020. So you're talking the pandemic, third quarter of 2020. Uh, The ratio of negative earnings revisions to positive earnings revisions is running at about a two-to-one rate in favor of uh, negative revisions. So, uh, given that, uh, I'm still bearish on stocks overall. Yeah. Profits are the mother's milk of stocks. Plus, the Fed's not done tightening. No. We are, we are getting some better news uh, on inflation, somewhat better news. Uh, Jim LeCamp, I'm looking at, looking at the personal income number came out for November. So, the PCE deflator... For the last three months, is 3.3% annually. So that's way down. The 12-month is 5.5. The core deflator is 3.6 for the three months and 4.7. Trouble is, all that stuff is above the 2% target. So, um, Mr. LeCamp, what are you thinking here? I mean, I don't think the Fed's done. As Mike Ozanian said, I don't think the outlook for profits is very good. Um, what are you thinking? Well, since you invoked the drifters, I would definitely say we are more under the boardwalk than we are <laughs> up on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> the, very good. Very uh, as good. Michael uh, pointed out, uh, leading indicators are, are one of my favorite indicators. But there, there's something else out there that not enough people are talking about. And that's the giant disparity between the BLS numbers and the household surveys. And not only that, if you look at the uh, at men ages uh, 25 to 54, 7 million are not in the workforce, 15 million women. I, I think the jobs market isn't anywhere near as good, and I think the falling inflation numbers, which are good, are somewhat of a reflection of a weaker economy. We're seeing um, we're seeing delinquencies start to ramp up a little bit. We're seeing consumer savings um, at the lowest level since 2008. And ultimately, this all boils down to what Michael was talking about, and that's corporate profits. And if you look at Wall Street, they're way too high. But even if they're not, even if they're not too high, let's look at consensus. 220? 220, apply, slap a 15 multiple on that, which is being very, very generous. Mm-hmm. You're still looking at 3,300 on the S&P 500, and we're above that now. Uh, so I, I don't think you can say anywhere at all that we're anywhere near a market bottom, and the recession hasn't even announced itself. And since it was Keith Richards' birthday this week, the, yeah, you can, the recession is clearly saying, can't you hear me knocking? I mean, it's, it's right on our door here. And so um, I, I think first we have to see recession. Second, we have to see a rate cut before we can start looking for a market bottom because these have always preceded market bottoms since World War II. We haven't even seen the VIX spike up anymore. I think that's partly because Treasury yields 
are so high that some money, instead of buying puts or, or shorting the market, some money just saying, what the heck, I'm going to buy a one-year or two-year treasury and put the money there. And that's another challenge for stocks is that short rates are so high that they're not a terrible parking place. So I, I just think we're not done yet. Yeah, the three-month bill is 428 the two-year note is 4.32, so those are those are you're right. Those are very competitive now. Uh, actually, they're both above uh, the most recent PCE deflator reading, at least a three-month reading. Uh, the bill rate is 4.28. So, what did I just say? 3.3 percent. Uh, hang on a second. I'll give you the exact. Yeah, 3.3% is the last three months of the PCE deflator, and the Treasury bill is, we'll call it four and a quarter. So it's actually a positive real yield. So it's starting to compete. That's a good point. Um, the first nine months of the year, the consumer price index, 7.4% annually, real GDP, 0.3%. So that doesn't detract from the recession story. I mean, it's very. Essentially, the economy has been flat this year. Um, the, the Atlanta GDP is that's that's above three percent the last time I looked. So maybe the fourth quarter will be a little bit better, but it still will have been a sloppy year. Coming to your uh, your other point, um, the S and P five hundred is thirty eight forty five. I'll call it thirty eight forty five. So what did you say? You said it should be with the fifteen times. I, I, I'm saying you've got to be generous to get there because that that would imply 220 times earnings is generous. Uh, Morgan Stanley's at 195; they're on the more bearish side, mm-hmm. but and consensus is up around 230. But to Michael's point, a lot of these revisions aren't 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 factoring into a lot of what Wall Street's projecting for earnings yet. But let's let's be generous and say 220, and let's be really generous and slap a 15 multiple on there when most bear markets end at 13 or 14. But at 15 times earnings, you're at 3,300. That's 500 points below where we are right now, and that's that's being really optimistic. And <clears throat> I'm looking at crude oil. West Texas crude is um, I'll call it eighty dollars, seventy nine forty six. Brent crude is eighty three ninety two, so call it eighty four. So oil prices are still pretty high. Um, gas prices nationwide, a little above $3. Actually, those are up slightly. Natural gas, if you can get any, is $5. So that doesn't really, I mean, you'd like to see a bigger drop in those energy prices, Michael Zanian. Yes, and I think that goes to the fact that what we're talking about, which is that the Fed is a long way from being done. And, you know, Jim mentioned something I think that a lot of people have overlooked, which is a lot of the consumer spending has been driven by depletion and savings. It's the same is true on the corporate side. If you look at retained earnings, which essentially is, is the accumulated savings from profits that, that corporations have, there was a very big drop last quarter. Uh, and, and that, to me, is a bearish sign because from that is where – you know, CapEx is spent and additional spending by companies. You know, it's basically an accumulation of profits after dividends over the years. And we hadn't had a, a drop like this in a while. So my point is corporations, like consumers, have been digging into savings uh, to, to maintain spending, to maintain dividends. 
and, and if you look back at history, that tends to be a bearish sign. And Jim's talking about applying a generous multiple of 15. Absolutely. But the forward P.E. right now is 17. So I, I think there's a big disconnect right now between how much more tightening the Fed has to do and how stocks are priced. And, you know, I think if, I think if people really believed that we had hit a bottom in stocks, when GDP was revised Friday higher for Q3, I think stocks would have jumped much more because it was a very significant increase upward. But I don't think that people, you know, are really buying into that. And, you know, I, I tend to think it's a, it's a bearish direction we're going in now for corporate profits and corporate spending. Uh, and I think that's going to uh, hurt productivity. And uh, so I think well into next year, 2023, I think the signals are bearish. All right. We're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get Bing Crosby. And <laughs> okay. I got to hear Bing Crosby. Otherwise, none of this stuff uh, works for me. We're talking to Michael Zanian of Forbes Media and Sports Money on the S Network. We're talking to Jim LeCamp and Morgan Stanley. I'm Kudlow. We're waiting for Bing Crosby and Christmas, the C word. I know it's politically incorrect, but we'll be right back anyway. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. just have to love that you just have to love that i'm giving away my age it has everything it has bing crosby it has the c word christmas my god those of you that don't know that go go and find it somewhere it's on youtube or wherever you go and find these things i don't know i mean come on that's really the only bullish thing we have today is bing crosby dreaming of a white christmas my god Michael Zanian, um, to get back to secular boring stuff here, the Federal Reserve, which entered our conversation in the first segment, but only briefly, the Fed is targeting a 2% inflation rate. And even though we've had good progress, uh, we're not there yet. But they're also targeting a 4.5% unemployment rate. point I want to make is, um, in terms of the outlook for next year, the Fed wants, I don't know if they want a recession. They say, you know, they come pretty close when you look at their dot plots institutionally to talking about a recession. But the inf let's see, the unemployment rate, I believe, is 3.7. They want it to go up to 4.4. That is not pro-growth. That is recession-like, okay? And that's going to add to whatever miseries there may be in terms of a sinking economy, and in terms of sinking profits, I don't see how you get around that. They're not going to stop until they see 
a significant hike in the unemployment rate. I don't happen to agree with that approach to inflation fighting. I don't agree with it one bit. It's the old Phillips curve. But that's what they're aiming at. What do you think this is going to do to the stock market? I think it's going to be very bearish. Uh, but also, because of what Jim touched on, I think the unemployment rate and the jobs economy is much worse than the Fed thinks and that Wall Street thinks. You know, the Philadelphia Fed came out with an analysis, and this may have been what Jim was was touching on, which basically what they said was by their calculations, instead of a million jobs being created in the third quarter, there were 10,000 net Mm -hmm. new jobs in the third quarter. Uh, So I, based on that and based on just what I see being involved every day working, uh, and, and what I see corporations doing, I, I think we're in a much better situation for the labor market already. Uh, and I think the Fed's miscalculated that, and that's why I think their policy, and I'm with you, I don't agree on the Phillips curve, but uh, I think it's going to be a lot worse uh, than, than people are anticipating. And I think it's another bearish sign for stocks. I mean, I hate to be so bearish as the day before Christmas uh, yeah. with Bing Crosby in the background, but I'm, I'm just calling it like I see it. Well, you have to. I mean, uh, Jim LeCamp, uh, (laughs) we've seen weakness in the household survey all along. We haven't seen it so much in the payroll survey. But I think, I don't know, I I didn't read the Philadelphia Fed thing. I looked at the headlines and so forth. But I think that's one of the things they're getting to, or maybe that's one of the results of their study. Uh, and so the Fed is going to go into its usual overkill. That's the most concerning part. Um, you know, do you think they'll have any common sense this time? Or let me put it to you differently. Do you think the inflation numbers, Jim, will keep falling and rescue the Fed? I mean, you do. You've seen good progress. I mean, the three-month uh, PCE deflator is slower than the six-month, and the six-month is slower than the 12-month. So you've got a definite downtrend in inflation. Maybe they'll come to their senses earlier this time around. Maybe. Uh, maybe, but the uh, Fed's track record, <clears throat> you know, they, they think they can micromanage the economy, and they they think they can predict what's going to happen. And the lesson uh, that we've learned from them is that they can't, and they're not very good at it at all. They have all the data in the world. But the interpretation of that data and the powers that they have uh, has been way off the mark every time. I mean, think back to 2018 when they said we're going to raise rates for uh, quite a period of time and we're going to shrink the balance sheet and it's going to be like watching paint dry. That was in September. And by March of 19, they were cutting rates again. I mean, they just they they, they haven't done a very good job at all. And now they, they've been on this series of chronic rate hikes. And as you pointed out, inflation's falling anyway. And uh, the good news about that is it it might encourage them to slow down. The bad news about that is it's going to impact corporate profits. And corporate profits, as you point out, are the mother's milk of the Mm -hmm. stock market. So it's a real messy situation. And you haven't even brought up uh, the $1.7 trillion spending spree that Washington just went on. And what kind of impact that could have on inflation? I know it's not going to help the economy, uh, but uh, it, it could make things messier 
on the inflation front over the next year or two. So it's it's a real messy situation. I don't have uh, much confidence at all in the Fed. I think they've proven they can bungle up um, anything. So um, I, I'm not I'm not confident at all. The good news is, I do think that we will hit a bottom sometime in 23, mm. uh, probably this summer, and we're going to have some tremendous opportunities from there. So the message I think for investors ought to be, hang on, baby, Friday's coming. It's just that Friday's not going to come for six months. I think the bullish thing here is Bing Crosby's White Christmas. (laughs) I just think that's the most bullish thing we can have. Somebody ought to send that to Joe Biden. Isn't he supposed to be Catholic? Yeah, he says he's he's a devout Catholic. But when he gave his Christmas tree speech, you know, they unveiled the national Christmas tree. He never mentioned Christmas, never mentioned Christmas, never mentioned baby Jesus. None of that stuff just just blows my mind. Anyway, we digress. I want both of you to have a happy, merry, holy Christmas and a great new year. Jim LeCamp of Morgan Stanley, Mike Ozanian of Forbes. Folks, stick around. We've got more to do. We're going to play some more bars of Bing Crosby's White Christmas. And we're going to talk some money in politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. With every Christmas card I ride, may your day. There you have it, Bing Crosby, White Christmas. You can't have Christmas without Bing Crosby. You cannot have, only Joe Biden can have Christmas without Christmas, number one, and of course without Bing Crosby, number two. Somebody should send that to our beloved president who opened the nation's Christmas tree without mentioning the word Christmas or baby Jesus, or any of those things that we usually associate with Christmas. But I digress. We're going to talk money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore from FreedomWorks and Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Welcome back, kids. Happy, holy, merry Christmas and New Year. I haven't figured out if I'm going to do this next Saturday. i got to figure that out yet. You'll be, you'll be the first to know. Anyway... Liz Peake, I got this message from you. The, the more you see of the omnibus, the less you like it, which really sent a chill down my spine. Huh. Well, I mean, let's talk omnibus just for a few moments. It's so much fun, really. I'm, I'm just appalled. And, and I, think, I think all Americans are just appalled. You know, Elon Musk did one of these random <laughs> uh, unsophisticated surveys on Twitter of should they pass it? And the answer was a resounding no, because what people have heard about this bill is what Rand Paul said. You know, it's going to be delivered 4,000 pages in the dark of night with minutes to read it. No one will have read it. Stuffed to the gills with all kinds of nonsense that now uh, Senator Paul has come out and enumerated, which is really great, because now we know the foolishness that is in this bill. 
you know, uh, I remember Tom Coburn when he would come out with his annual waste book, Mm -hmm. and it was just a treasure trove of government stupidity. So here, Larry, the big picture is we should not be spending $1.7 trillion. That's the bottom line. And I don't care what the Republicans got in terms of increased defense spending. Yes, they did get an increase, but the reality is none of it should have gone up. Probably Mm -hmm. defense if you looked hard at what they're spending money on and where the money's allocated, and oh yes, by the way, they seem to have lost a lot of it, you know, my guess is they didn't need an increase. What they need is more efficient management. What the government needs is more efficient management and a budget. This is not a budget. This is a free-for-all. Yeah, you know, Steve, Rand, Rand Paul, he's a really good guy. Rand Paul started it uh, on the TV show last week when he said that the GOP senators had given up the power of the purse and were emasculating themselves. That word emasculating went a long way. It went totally viral uh, throughout the Internet. But, Steve Moore, um, one point here is, what does this do to Republican credibility? This is what is so concerning. This is supposed to be, what, the free market party, the party of limited government, limited spending, limited taxing, limited regulations, more oil and gas. What exactly is in this omnibus bill that gives the GOP any credibility at all? Well, Steve Moore, are you there? If Sorry. Not, can you hear me now? Yeah, I got you. Okay, sorry about that. I was muted. Well, can I say Merry Christmas and not Happy Holidays? Yeah, right. Am I, allowed, am I allowed to do that on the show? <laughs> yes. We've, we've spent quite a bit of time today doing just that. I hope you heard Bing Crosby's White Christmas I did. rendition. I thought, that was, I thought that was you singing there for a minute, Larry. But, yeah, it's, it's not. By the way, I am in Chicago, and we do have a White Christmas here, so it's it's a wonderful, wonderful oh, thing. Um, look, um, this does destroy the Republican credibility. You know, it's it's the stupidity of it, really. I mean, let's even just put aside all the terrible things in it that Liz was just talking about. The political stupidity of this is just mm-hmm. monumental. I can't tell you how many people, you know, I was on your show, uh, what, four or five days ago, we were talking about this. I mean, I just got an avalanche of response from that. People mm-hmm. are so angry. And mm-hmm. I mean, so angry about this. And people are just, disgusted and they felt like republic look the republicans have one job between now and 2024 try to advance a pro-economic growth agenda mm-hmm. and stop the growth of spending that's this isn't complicated right mm-hmm. now why did they do it because they wanted 50 billion dollars more for defense and we could argue about whether that's necessary i i do not i think we spend plenty of money on our military right now but you know reasonable people can disagree on that but to get $50 billion more in defense, the Republicans gave up $150 billion for more social program spending when you know, we've already spent $4.2 trillion. All the Republicans have talked about for the last two years is how out of control the budget is, and they're right, and this is the first thing they do. So it's, it's bad economics, and it's even worse politics. And well, and, they, and the worst thing is, Larry, it, all they needed to do was force uh, the government, force Congress into a continuing resolution right. so that when Republicans take over the House, which everyone worked really hard to allow them to do, then they would be able to rewrite this thing. They, As I get it, the House Republicans had no voice in this bill whatsoever. So what in the world are they 
kowtowing to what will soon be a minority in allowing this to pass. I, I really found it shocking. Liz, uh, Liz, I, I, can kind of, answer, I, I can answer your question for you. Okay. You know, they wanted the pork. Yeah. They really did. That's how shallow these guys are. They wanted to bring home the bacon. There's something like 2,000 special interest, you know, local projects in here. And that's how bad it's become. And yeah. you mentioned Tom Coburn. Boy, do we need him back. Because, by the way, before Tom Coburn, Coburn do you guys remember uh, Bill Proxmire? Remember yeah. Him from, he had the old Golden, the Golden Fleece Award. Golden Fleece Award. I remember <laughs> it well. Nothing back. <laughs> by the way, um, Mitch McConnell said at one point, how important it was that a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House and a Democratic president could all work together with Republicans to pass this omnibus bill. That was a quote. And Mm -hmm. Molly Hemingway of The Federalist wrote a very good, tough piece. And she basically argued that as long as Mitch McConnell is the Republican Senate leader, uh, the Republicans will never fulfill their principles. That he, as long as he's there, they will never break out of this um, big spending approach. And you ask yourself, what's the difference between Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. Senate? What is exactly the difference? I think well, voters and donors and others can't figure this out. Can Can I just say one thing about this? And and I think. I think Mitch McConnell is scarred by ever having had the Republicans shut down the government and taking a lot of heat for it. That's the only explanation I can come up with. And the fact that he really distrusts these handful of Republicans in the House who are balking at making Kevin McCarthy the speaker. It's a, it's a group. Uh, it's not more than a dozen, but they are really adamant. And I think he doesn't trust them. So I think he wanted to take away from them the leverage that they had. But before we throw McConnell totally under the bus, I always go back to the fact that Merrick Garland would be a Supreme Court justice were Mm -hmm. it not for Mitch McConnell, and we would not have uh, Amy Comey Barrett and Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. So whatever Mm -hmm. else he's done, I do give him some credit for that. But I have to say his leadership here, he's so anti-Trump that now he's sort of anti-conservative, and I do think it's really hurting the party. But Liz— as a former Wall Streeter, you remember the phrase, you're only as good as your last trade. Yeah, I gr- couldn't agree with that more. I know. It, I mean, he's lost every all his credibility now. And, you know, Steve, I hope that the GOP uh, House, you know, gets going fast on a good 2024 budget that contains the principles they had in the commitment to America. I mean, otherwise, the Republican Party message just completely falls apart. Yeah, I wonder if it's a little too late for that. I mean, seriously, I yeah, mean, I think people yeah. are so disgusted by what the giveaway. Um, one point, you know, I'll make about Mitch McConnell. And, you know, I've had a love-hate relationship with Mitch McConnell, you know, for mm-hmm. 20 years. And there's things mm-hmm. to love about him, things to hate. It's too easy to blame Mitch McConnell for this. I mean, my God, you have people like Tom Cotton over yeah. this. Yeah. And Tom Cotton is supposed to be a, you know, Republican conservative Many people wanted him to run for president. He can throw that out the window now. I mean, there were there were only about 20 Republicans voted with Rand Paul on any of this out of 50. So I think it's Dewey. I think there's a real cultural problem in the Senate. It's always been a club, Larry. That's the one thing about the Senate. It is a club. 
And this was the club. It didn't matter whether they're an R or a D next to their name. By the way, I think virtually every Democrat voted for this. I mean, so the, the idea that they have any fiscal conservative principles, you know, was washed away, too. But, uh, God, I mean, only 21 Republicans voted for uh, the kind of stuff that uh, that uh, Rand Paul was talking about, which was very sensible stuff. It was just let's let's do what we said we were going to do. Well, how about Chuck way, Schumer? He is, he is my man of the year, by the way. Rand Paul is the, is the Republican of the year. But, um, but you know, give Mike Lee some credit. Yeah, I he mean, was great, too. He he tied everybody up in knots with yep. his amendment to extend Title 42. So, Liz, yeah. he had the votes. As he said on the TV show, he said, for eight glorious minutes, uh, we had the votes <laughs> yeah. to get Title 42 extended, which would have meant omnibus goes down in the House. And then Schumer took over and got Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin to change their votes. Um, Les, you remember Kirsten Cinema? She's the new bright light, the newest independent thinker in the Senate. She really stood on principle here. Eight minutes later, gone. Changed yeah, her vote. Yeah. I don't know how many post offices did they have in the state of Arizona that can be named the Cinema Postal Service. Well, and and you really, I mean, exactly. She's from a border state. I think that she is certainly vulnerable uh, here in terms of people really being angry about this. Uh, when you use the word principle in a conversation involving this omnibus bill, I really find that an oxymoron. There are no <laughs> principles in here whatsoever. By the way, the other th guy that you had on, Larry, that I thought was excellent was Mike Braun. And yes. I really felt, uh, felt the Indiana senator who wants to run for governor, and, mm -hmm. and I thought he also articulated very well the fact that the Congress is basically making our country weaker and weaker with every year that passes, yeah. with every year that our debt continues to increase. Yeah. And by the way, what is the debt, the, the number for interest on our debt in this omnibus bill, I think is close to half a trillion dollars. Am I right mm -hmm. on that? $485 billion, something like that? Mm -hmm. It's Sounds about staggering. Right. It is staggering. He's and an that, people need to understand that that begins to edge out major programs we can't put the entire American government on the credit card, uh, and that's kind of what we're doing right now. So people, Americans are commonsensical enough to know this is unsustainable. But Mike someone Braun. has to kind of put, you know, make a bold first step, and boy, we sure didn't see that. Mike Braun's an underrated guy, actually. We've watched yeah. him down through the years. All right, we're going to take a quick break, folks, and when we come back, we'll talk more with Liz Peake and Steve Moore and Bing Prosby. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. That's Bing Crosby whistling, by the way. I wish I could whistle like that. It could have been a whole different career if you think about it. Anyway, that's Bing Crosby, White Christmas. Someone should um, email it or text it to Joe Biden. This is Christmas. Um, we are here with our Christmas favorites, Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I just want to throw in, I want to toss in one thing, Steve. Um, there's a big tax hike in this bill, and it was Dan Clifton that uh, pulled the plug on this, 
and it didn't get enough attention, but the Trump tax cuts, uh, the bonus depreciation immediate expensing, completely runs out on the R&D tax credit. Uh, 20% of it runs out. You go from 100% expensing to 80% expensing. They didn't deal with that. And there was also um, an interest deduction for corporations. And they've already raised taxes on corporations in that stupid inflation reduction bill. And Mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, this is another very bad part of this bill. Republicans (laughs) did not stand up for tax cuts. Everyone agrees the Trump tax cuts were a great success, except nobody stood up for it, really, until it was way too late. And it it never got the attention it should have gotten. I just wanted to throw that in. Because we're going to have more problems extending the Trump tax cuts in whatever new budget uh, comes up. We're going to have more problems with that. Anyway, um, Liz Peek, I had Dr. Robert Redfield on this show earlier segment uh, in the second hour. And the reason I'm raising it, he was the CDC director. He was the guy who instituted Title 42, okay? Mm-hmm. And and. The point he makes, and this is where I'm going, he wrote a very good New York Post column uh, with our friend Dr. Mark Siegel, a Fox contributor, that Title 42 should be upheld for public health reasons. It's not a political issue. And furthermore, it's there to protect the illegal immigrants themselves as much as anything else. It not only protects Americans, because they, you know, nobody can check them out for diseases, whether it's COVID or influenza uh, or injuries crossing or dehydrating or whatever. But it protects the immigrants themselves. And that's why the thing should be extended. And um, I just wanted to raise that again, because I think it's a very important point. I, I think he's totally right. I mean, look, we're talking uh, thousands of people now a day coming into our country. We have absolutely no idea what kinds of uh, contagious diseases they might have. And mm-hmm. by the way, when they're penned up, as they are at you know, various points or put together with other people in buses or planes or whatever, yeah, I mean, they're going to make people sick. And so, yes, I think just the sheer volume, Larry, it, and forget COVID. I mean, it could be any time. When you have this many people from all over the world coming across our border, uh, and we don't have the sheer capacity to check them all out health-wise. Mm-hmm. I remember last year, wasn't it cholera that showed up in Los Angeles and the homeless population? Well, where did that come from? Who knows? Ebola has also made its way into our country uh, through people coming in illegally. These are really risky undertakings, and we have no control over it whatsoever. And, Steve, that last point Liz makes on homelessness was another thing that Redfield really emphasized. Homelessness is unfortunately disease-ridden. It is an epidemic. And a lot of the illegal immigrants wind up as homeless on top of these large city homeless communities that continue to grow. In other words, the bottom, bottom, bottom line here is this may, you know, the Bidens may see this uh, as giving everybody asylum or giving everybody amnesty. This is a public health catastrophe in the making, and no one's talking about that. And I also asked Bob Redfield, I said, in your CDC circles, what are the Bidens uh, putting together as a uh, substitute for Title 42? He said he, didn't, he heard nothing. Yeah. 
There's nothing out there. And right. this is a potential catastrophe. Yeah, look, I don't get what Biden is doing. I mean, Title 42 was a very convenient kind of out for Biden because, he, you know, his constituency just wants open borders. They want mm-hmm. anybody to come in. They can't, mm-hmm. And I, I, you know me for 30 years, Larry. I'm as pro-immigration as anyone, but you got to mm-hmm. have a legal process for immigrants coming into the country. So I don't understand the politics of this. All Biden had to do was embrace Title 42, and it would have been a, you know, logical solution uh, to this issue. One other quick thing that's related to this discussion, and it goes back to what we were talking about the about the omnibus bill. The omnibus bill gives billions and billions of dollars more for the Center for Disease Control. Yeah. Everything the CDC has done for the last three years has been exactly the wrong thing to do. They screwed up COVID from day one. They shouldn't be rewarded with more money. You know, Milton Friedman used to say, the more an agency screws up, the more we think it needs more money. And that's exactly what's happened here. I would have zeroed out. That neat place needs to be cleaned out. They were in favor of lockdowns. They were in favor of shutting down the schools. They were in favor of maximizing. They were the ones that said that, that, that uh, COVID was going to kill two or three million people. I and mean, everything they did was wrong. And, and by the way, they're also the people who told everyone that these <clears throat> inoculations, the vaccines, were going to prevent you from getting COVID. And so yep, the, exactly. the credibility of our health authorities was completely right. demolished. And any impulse on the American public of going ahead and taking more vaccines, the, roll, uh, the rollout exactly. of the most recent vaccine has been wildly disappointing. Well, guess why? No one really exactly. understands whether it's worthwhile. Doctors are conflicted about it. And part of it goes back to the fact that the CDC was so adamant, as was Joe yeah. Biden, that if you get the shot, you're not going to get COVID, which was... And by the way, Liz, the more that they mandate this, the more people don't want it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly true. the opposite effect. Yeah. And people are distrustful of the government. Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. By the way, Redfield, it was a really interesting interview. Redfield said that when he uh, promulgated the regulation for Title 42... The CDC bureaucracy was completely against it, against it. <laughs> and, and, and leaked it out and attacked him mercilessly. Uh, so, I mean, this CDC thing needs to be reviewed. I'm sure it never will. Um, we also, speaking of um, uh, border closings, um, gave quite a bit of money to Tunisia and <laughs> Egypt, as I recall, and Jordan. Liz, you 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 think Americans are worried about the Tunisian border? <laughs> they got about four hundred fifty million dollars. Yeah, do you think no, Americans I, know where Tunis is or Tunisia? Is? I don't even know where it is. I do know where it is. I don't know how to say it. I know where it is, but I actually don't know what their border problem is. I mean, there are countries that really have border problems, like Iraq, Syria. But I'm not sure. Ay, ay, ay. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> come on, it was a pressing issue. The Tunisian yeah. border. Larry. Larry, build the wall. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Build the wall. And the other, the other thing, Steve, is before we get too giddy on this, is for all of its good works, the FBI is getting a new $600 million building. Uh, the FBI is getting a new $600 million. The only battle is whether it's going to be in Maryland or Virginia. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's in this bill. And, and Larry, just... I know we're running out of behind. The other, uh, uh, the other one is the... Um is the IRS commissioner now gets a limousine service. 
Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. good. That's that makes me, me feel better. He doesn't have to use Uber. All right. Merry Christmas. Love, love, love. Happy New Year. Liz Peake, Steve Moore. Merry Christmas, Larry. Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas. Take care. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is going to go out with Bing Crosby, I'm sure. And uh, we'll talk next weekend, possibly. Anyway, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Season's greetings. Good for baby Jesus. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.